Greetings, and welcome to Talking Trek to You, where an expert and a noob boldly go through Star Trek episode by episode. My name is JG McQuarrie, and I'm here with my co-host, Kev Kozer. Say hi, Kev. Hi. How are you doing this week? Well, I am definitely um, old enough to start getting these purple lesions on my skin, and so I don't know how much longer I have to record this podcast. Well, fortunately, we have a vaccine for that, which will make those blemishes mysteriously fade away as if by magic. And we are going to be talking about, oh god help us all, Miri this week. Um, an episode which I think I think the three of us are maybe fairly similarly uh, minded about, but which seems to have a weirdly popular reputation within, uh, within Star Trek fandom. But before we get to discuss the episode, we must first introduce our guest. So um, say hello, John. Hi, lovely to be here. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. All my blemishes have cleared. I am, you know, just now grappling with the fact that I'm 300 years old, but you know, I think, I think I'll make it. I think I'll make it. You don't look a day over 250. I really wouldn't worry about it. Oh, you're so kind. You're so kind. <laughs> we charm all our guests like that. Don't worry. Um, so, so yeah, so we're going to be, um, we're going to be covering Miri this week, uh, which should be a, a whole bunch of fun. Um, but before we get to that, um, John, what's your history with Star Trek? How, how did you get into the show and, and how long have you been a fan? Um, my, my path to Trek is a little circuitous. Um, unlike a lot of your previous guests, uh, I say as a devoted listener, um, I didn't come to it through the J.J. Abrams movies. Um, in fact, uh, that is, I have, I have these weird moments in my past where Star Trek comes up and it's treated as such a strange and almost unapproachable thing. Um, I literally had this friend at university when the first J.J. Abrams film came out. Um, and we're like, oh, you know, we, we're sitting all around and having coffee. And we go, um, oh, we should go and see it. And she was adamant that, no, that was the Rubicon we could not cross. How <laughs> dare you suggest that? Um, it's like just my, my, my past up to that point is sort of littered with weird moments. I have this one memory of being about, God, I can't even remember how old I was, but um, Next Generation was airing on local television here in New Zealand. Um, spoilers for why I have a weird mishmash accent. Um, uh, it was airing on local television here, and we'd gone around to some friend of my dad's through work or something, um, and I wanted nothing to do with anyone there because they were all adults and I was the only child. So I was just watching television off in another room, and um, for some reason, Next Generation was on. And this was a weird, like discovery that my mother made like oh you were watching star trek Ooh, like just <laughs> weird things like this i mean I'm, I'm a big genre tv person like i grew up on you know buffy and charmed and things like that it's you know that kind of um genre uh, thing has sort of always been a part of my um basic uh basic makeup but um, yeah, it's just, uh, took a long road to get here. And then with discovery and so on, um, yeah, I finally jumped on the train. Excellent. Well, we're, we're very happy to have you upon our train with us today. Um, great. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you. Um, so I suppose we have to talk about the episode now, right? But, um, but before we do <laughs> that, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you get the impression I'm trying to put this off and uh, never mind. Um, Kev, would you care to give us a summary of it, please? Of course, the USS Enterprise discovers a planet that looks exactly like Earth. This never comes up again. It's just an excuse for them to reuse sets. Um, <laughs> they land on this planet, uh, Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and Rand. Uh, they encounter a girl who is of indeterminate age. Um, at least her actor is 19 years old. <laughs> But she's still uh, too young for Kirk, which is why it's unfortunate that she gets a crush on him and he acts very flirty with her the entire episode. She is hiding from a roving pack of kids who are the only life left on this planet that has been ravaged by a plague that targets adults. Also, everyone on this planet is like weirdly... Some aging long-term life experiment was done on them, so the kids are all multi-hundred years old. But that still means they're... Bio when they're biologically hit, what we know as 18 is when they start getting infected. Of course, our 
uh, Kirk McCoy and Rand get infected. They need to work with the kids to get a vaccine. And the kids keep stealing equipment and getting in their way. But eventually they win them over with a classic Kirk speech. And McCoy tests a vaccine on himself and it works. And then everything's uh, good and hunky-dory. Well, good seems like a generous description, but yes, okay. Um, well, thank you. Uh, thank you, Kev, for that. Much appreciated. Um, John, you're our, our guest, so um, why don't you kick us off? Uh, how did you find Mary? Uh, you know, I have some some very mixed opinions about it. Um, I think there were some ideas at play that were perhaps stronger than the actual writing um, that was built to sort of scaffold and support them. Um, I, You know, I just... I think that... If there's a fundamental problem with Mary, and I say this as someone who didn't like exactly hate it, uh, but you know just came away feeling very mixed about it. Uh, if there's a fundamental problem with it, I think it's that uh, there's just a little bit too little attention played to its core conceit, um, which is the sort of um, <laughs> to borrow a phrase from um, something else, timeless children, almost. Um, and they're kind of, you know, like I came to it expecting Lord of the Flies based on the plot summary. And while I was slightly, rele- you know, quite relieved that it didn't go there because, God, I was not wanting that. Um, the fact that it, the closest it got to any sort of engagement with them was just, well here's some kids singing nursery rhymes and that's spooky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, like I, yeah, I felt for, for 300 years, it was a very non-existent society. And with that sort of being as weak as it was, that kind of echoed out into a lot of other things, not really having the footing that they should have, you know? Oh yeah, absolutely. No, I think yeah. that's a I think that's a very fair and balanced assessment. Um, Kev, how how did you find it? Yeah, I I feel like you're going to be most generous of the three of us, John. I also think <laughs> uh, this is an episode that doesn't quite engage with a central premise. There's a lot of stuff on the surface I quite enjoy. I, I just think our main characters being terrorized by children is just something that is funny on the face of it. So that it got me through the episode. I was entertained, I guess, up to a point. But there's so many problems with it as well. It's just, it can't execute any sort of deeper idea to save its life. Um, everything dealing with the character of Miri is just a disaster. It's it incredibly uncomfortable. And I, it's, um, and yeah, there's not much else to it. <laughs> it's, it's a fairly straightforward episode where yeah, your premise is our adult characters get harassed by children and i mean, that's they don't really have many ideas beyond that yeah it this is this is a sticky one for me because this is this is i mean easily the worst episode i think we've covered in the podcast so far uh, but it's also one of my absolute least favorite episodes of star trek i find it deeply uncomfortable to watch um for a variety of reasons um, the conceit itself, I, I mean, I agree with both of you. I don't think it's well thought through. I don't think there's enough attention paid um, to any of it. And particularly, like, the idea that, that these children are, are 300 years old or whatever is meant to be, like, a big kind of dun-dun-dun moment. Um, but it also seems to equate the idea that they're 300 years old with the idea that they're incapable of learning anything over that 300 years. So they still behave and act like kids. And okay, right, fair enough. That's sort of, that's necessary for the, and you may assume heavy inverted commas here, conceit of the piece. But but at the same time, they would still be capable of, learning i mean kids can still right. learn stuff so like the idea like the, the, the like for example that it's it's positive that the food will run out in like six months time they would be aware of that you know they would see oh well i mean the food is again very you know it's a very kind of broad thing but at least it, at least they bother to address it and like we can assume that it was rations or something like that future food whatever um but you know like if you walk into a room a hundred years ago and it's full and then you walk into it uh you know five minutes ago and it's almost empty like a a kid can learn oh right we've eaten all that it's going to run out that's not 
something that a child would be incapable of learning. So all those kind of logical inconsistencies just just don't make sense. And they don't make it, it's it's not even that they don't make sense. They don't make sense in the context of that they're being presented in. And that idea that that it's such a a limited idea of what a a child can be or what a child can learn and that just fundamentally holds the whole episode because there's no idea that the the the, the child characters here are, are capable of anything as as if they are that kind of cliche oh you know oh children are so pure right up until puberty and then it all goes wrong you know it's all that kind of it's it's very cliched it's very lazy and it's very kind of, sort of time locked in a way that is not in yeah any way kind of helpful it definitely feels like it was written with one of those sort of 1960s bringing up a child type handbooks, you know, mm. um, <laughs> you know, ironically, the original um, Dr. Spark, maybe yeah, exactly. um, where someone has sat down and said, right, OK, I'm writing about children this week. Um, OK, so children at this age are stuck in this development mental cycle. So, OK, so if they're supposed to be this age, then that's how they will always be. And that's how I'm going to write to these 300 year object. Like it's there's just something fundamental about the way that it fails to engage with any idea of the, the children as potentially being actual living, breathing human, like um, agents of, you know, their own destiny for want of a, you know, less flowery turn of phrase. Um, it's, yeah, it's just, it's the most bizarre thing. And I just have to assume that um, sort of uh, like the episode, um, a few back with the two Kirks, like it feels like someone sat down with a popular text of the time and has basically written fanfic about some psych psychoanalytical ideal rather than actually writing a, a story. Right. And I, I just think that just speaks to how like tricky it is to write kids in fiction when you get it right. Mm. Those are some of my favorite stories. Um, Moonrise Kingdom is my favorite Wes Anderson, one of my favorite movies overall. I love both the original book and then the movie of Where the Wild Things Are. I mean, there's pl I can think of plenty more examples where it's like, oh, I love seeing these like coming of age stories and kids being treated really well. But it's so easy to mess up if you're an adult and you just can't quite thread the needle of how a kid thinks, and this just wildly misses the mark. It's 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 like. Like the Sandlot is like a more accurate, like, or like Garbage Pail Kids. It's like, it has that same sort of energy of like the Little Rascals. I think that's like sort of the er example I was thinking of that leads to the other ones. Um, it's such like a, it's like a 1960s conception of children where it's just like they are these lesser life forms <laughs> that would grow up to adults eventually, but they don't have really thoughts of their own, which is how I guess you get to these, this plot hole of, well, if they've lived for 300 years, they should know things by now. And, how you get to this sort of, as you're saying, John, is there a sixties way of viewing the ch children? It's just, yeah, it's just not a vision of what children look and act like that holds up, not just to like modern scrutiny, but to any scrutiny. Just to jump off what Kev was saying there, um, I have this very particular sticking point that I could not escape the whole time I was watching it, which is that um, I've just uh, rewatched uh, with my ex flatmates. Uh, the original West Side Story. Yes. And the the way that the, that city looks um, at, uh, at times with kind of, you know, they're going through um, sort of shells of buildings at times as they're dancing around and they're kind of strangely adult children. Uh, I could not, like, it just got into my head that it was, like, operating on the same level almost, <laughs> except... West Side Story at least attempted to do something with that. And instead you just had, well, we'll get some similar looking sets and we'll get some children and we'll get them to do something. Question mark. Uh, it's just, it's one of those things. I Once that got stuck in my head, I think that definitely colored a lot of how I was watching this uh, in that there have definitely been things that took the exact tableau that we came across multiple times and executed so much better. Yeah, I, the thing is, I'm not that convinced that anybody that was involved in this prediction has met a child before. Uh, <laughs> and I'd, that, agree, I'd agree. And, and uh, we know that that can't be the case because like, there's, there's um, a Shatner and a Roddenberry and a Whitney in the cast because their kids <laughs> are in this. Like, Did nobody who was involved in this actually stop and think, but... 
but that's not what kids are like. And you know, it's written by Adrian Spees, and I was reading a, 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 a sort of behind-the-scenes thing beforehand, and apparently he was talking to Roddenberry about their kids as well. So, like, like these are people who have interacted with children, and yet it reads like somebody who's had a child, or sorry, it views as somebody who's had a child described to them but in abstract and then never actually met one to kind of write around them. I don't know. It's, it's so weird. And like Michael J. Pollard um, as, as John does a reasonably good job of kind of being the, the, the kind of leader. Yeah. Um, but I think the other problem is, is that the cast is just weak. It's, yeah. it's not a, it's not a good cast. And, and that is the other big, big problem when you have, you know, children taking up kind of major roles in this kind of drama. It's very difficult to find, you know, kids who can act convincingly. I can't even begin to imagine what the casting process was like, but but yeah. like none of them really come through. And I'm 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 afraid that uh, Kim Darby as Mary just just isn't that good. And it it's another big problem with the production. I just want to shout Michael J. Pollard first to talk to him. I think he has the right energy of the guest cast. Like, I agree with you, JJ. The guest cast is very weak overall, but at least he is bringing, like, I'm the riff. Like, to go back to West Side Story, he's, like, so the riff yeah, of yeah, the group. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah, he is um, leading these kids. He has sort of the brash voice. He still looks kiddish enough in his way, even though he's going to be in Bonnie and Clyde the next year. <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, he, he has a little baby face. It is the proportions of a baby, and it I think that's the only reason he gets away with it. Exactly. I, he looks like he's 28 at the time of filming. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? It's like I said, he has the right energy. And Star Trek, if if nothing else, Star Trek is a show where you do your best to put your like realism hat aside and buy what they're aiming for and not what actually is on screen. But still, I mean, I think this is where he can sort of get away with it because, like I said, he has the charisma. Kim Darby cannot it's it's, (laughs) her ability just isn't there i'm sorry but she is very flat in all of her scenes and it's very odd that the dial is clearly construing her as she's in love with kirk and he does not requite her but darby and shatner the chemistry is entirely backwards and it feels like he is creeping on this girl who is like very passively not interested in anything she plays it a lot like she's um like got a um a role in you know a a new version of Gone with the Wind or something. Like she's very like blushing dame and oh I'm terribly yeah. sorry. I couldn't I couldn't possibly you're a, 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 a ship captain you say? Oh do you like it's it's <laughs> such a re- receptive's the wrong word, but it's like everything that acts on her uh, everything in the show rather acts on her and she's just kind of there to just kind of fawn and be a little bit, you know, struck by things, and it, 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 it. She has no real personality of her own beyond that sort of. Oh my, a captain! Like you know, it's it's yeah. It, the the most action acting she really does is in that first scene with her, where she's terrified of them, and then right. once she gets, once they get past that, it really just all falls away. And I mean, you have the three. You have the three actors, kid actors, basically, who have actual defined um, personalities, quote unquote. Um, you have her, you have John, and you have, I don't even know if he has a name, the Bong Bong kid um, who just keeps hitting everything. Um, and to be honest, of the three, I got to give it to the, the kid that keeps hitting everything. I yeah. think I walked away. He's the one I'll remember. <laughs> and that's not a good sign. Yeah, he, he's also deeply peculiar looking as well, so he kind of sticks in the memory. But uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it's 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 a real problem if your if your guest cast aren't aren't going to be up to scratch. And I mean, you know, I mean, we have to kind of we have to address this at some point in the podcast. So let's let's kind of get it out of the way. The the the, the writing of this episode pretty much just has Kirk coming on to an underage girl and it's right. awful it's just so deeply uncomfortable and not from a 21st century perspective but from a 1960s perspective as well they constantly emphasize that this virus kicks in after 
um, somebody hits puberty. Not adolescence, not post-adolescence. They're very explicit about the point that it happens. We have the whole speech that Spock has about, you know, glandular changes and, and people keep saying puberty this and puberty that. And, and the way that Kirk responds to Miri is, is essentially just him. I mean, the, the most generous interpretation of it is taking advantage. Um, but there's like also that scene where he says, you know, do you want to go somewhere with me? Now, <sighs> in 1960s, uh, you know, kind of lingo or 1960s language, that has a very specific and a very explicit meaning. That's not a casual kind of, uh, you know, like there's a time when Kirk tells uh, Rand, oh, uh, take Murray for a walk or something because we've got something to discuss. That's fine. That's clear. But the way that he says it and that specific form of language, that's, uh, you know, we're going up to Lover's Lake kind of language. And it's it's right. vastly, it's, deeply yeah, uncomfortable. And, and, oh, God, it's, it's horrible. It's that specific going with language that, yeah. you know, is it's the hallmark of all of those, you know, uh, uh, Bikini Beach Babylon type films. It's not at all... Um, what should really be underscoring <laughs> what is here, a child and Captain Kirk. Right. And, I mean, he plays it the only way that it seems that Shatner can, which is that kind of, you know, I'm the leading man, so I'll do the leading man look and I'll turn my head and give the eye. And it's, you know, he's, he's bored in a way that is very uncomfortable. And I'd almost respect it more if he was just trying to make an make an advance on this teenage girl as horrible as it is to say because at least that would be sticking to some sort of gun but instead it's just it comes across so much as like like you said the charitable read of he's exploiting her and that is so much like both options are incredibly creepy and somehow they managed to go for the creepier one <laughs> well, right exactly it's it's just so odd i just think like shatner has moments i like in this episode and i have been jumped depending on this podcast but i think he just completely misreads this entire dynamic like from the start like i think like the idea that from their first meeting he seems to be giving her i i feel gross saying it but he seems to be giving her bedroom eyes and then he acts surprised when mccoy is like she has feelings for you you know and, and of course, that whole discussion of, oh, she's becoming a woman is just oh. gag-inducing. Mm -hmm. um, so I, And then it ends with that awful punchline <laughs> where Kirk says he never gets involved <laughs> with an older woman. <laughs> oh, yeah, um, it's so bad. It's awful. So it's like, I, I truly... But he obviously is using her attraction to him to get to the other kids and to, like, help him out and like save his life so yeah it's just not it's never like you said john it's like they should have stuck to a gun and at least that would have been respectable if not good but instead by like trying to have it in every direction and remain ambiguous it's just it just makes you feel worse about it it's just a terrible terrible element to this episode can i just asterisk the um sort of brief summary that JG gave of it to kind of hopefully maybe pivot us away a little bit onto something equally terrible, but not as unsavory almost um, in that it's not actually just Kirk and Mary. Um, you do still have, and I mean, God bless her uh, for putting up with the horrible stuff that she did. Um, you do also have the, the second prong, which is um, so you've got Mary who's clearly infatuated with Kirk. And then as the virus really starts to take hold and everything starts to look dire, how could we not uh, take a moment to just check in with, oh, once again, we have to remind you that Yeoman Rand is also deeply in love with Kirk and wants, her, uh, wants him to look at her legs. That's all, <laughs> all she's ever wanted. And that scene literally made me feel genuinely ill the first time I saw it. <laughs> It was it was such a just it, like a, as misreadings go to pivot to the actual relationship that would be vaguely okay, and somehow make it even more unsavory than 
the Mary stuff. Um, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how they got there. I mean, God, God bless Grace Lee Whitney for dealing, doing what she did. Cause she's, she's pretty fantastic. And like, she's silently setting, you know, all sorts of records, you know, she's, she's just there. She's one of the crew. She's, she's doing a un, unthinkable thing in 60 science fiction of just being one of the team that beams down and does her job and does it well. And then we have to pivot back to, oh, by the way, I'm your sex object, but also now I'm covered in lesions and this is, mm-hmm. you know, a, the worst thing in the world. And it, oh, it just, mis, missteps abound. Mis, <laughs> to, to put too fine a point on it, missteps abound. Well, yes. the thing with the thing with Rand's relationship in this uh, episode is it was actually this is this is the better version of it. Apparently, she was, apparently she was much chummier with Kirk in the original dra- the original draft of the episode, and and they were much more kind of casual with each other, and and that kind of got tightened up in rewrites so that she would appear kind of a bit more uh, professional when she was dealing with her actual captain until this kind of supposed moment of of vulnerability, and I think as well it's it. It's kind of, from a, a cinematography point of view, I think this is quite a well-directed episode, considering it's just cheap back lots and, and whatever. Um, but from a casting perspective, I think that's where a lot of the direction sort of falls down. And that scene with uh, with Grace Lee Whitney and, and William Shatner is a perfect example of it, because it is just so badly misjudged in almost every way and the direction is is very much a part of that and yeah god like god bless grace lee whitney for having to put up with any of this nonsense because she does such a good job of of kind of breathing life into into yeoman rand we've talked in the podcast before about the fact that it's really only the strength of her performance that makes rand at all kind of memorable or or noticeable because there's no sense at all that she has any kind of life away from, um, you know, her actual lines in the episode. Like even Uhura, who's had noticeably less screen time than Rand at this point in the in the series. Even she's, we've seen her singing, we've seen her being flirtatious with Spock, we've seen her doing her job. Like there's a sense that she has a whole life and a whole personality. Rand has never kind of afforded that. And this episode is kind of like the perfect lodestone for that. Like she's here, she's competent, she's doing her job, but she has no actual dimension to her. And it's only through the quality of performance that Grace Lee Whitney is giving that she has any sort of presence at all. And then they give her the look at my leg scene. I mean, it's just, you know, it's staggering in a way. And that's that, like that scene, like I said before, this is one of my least favorite episodes of Star Trek. And, and like, I'm with you, John. Like that scene is one of the reasons for it. It's just so deeply misjudged on, on every level as if like the only thing this, this otherwise competent woman could really care about deep down is trying to catch the captain's eye by flashing her gams. I mean, it's just... Oh, it's so bad. It's such an insane thing, given that, like, literally her being there is something that should make this a milestone episode of television, almost. Like, she's she's part of the landing party. She is there to do her job. She is a competent professional. She's working at the same level as Spock and McCoy uh and you know she's obviously under kirk but you know they're they're professionals working and saying in 60 science fiction on you know network television that's astounding Absolutely. and it's just silently happening and it it almost feels like you know the the kind of pendulum of progress if it swings too far one way and it immediately has to jerk back the other and like it's it's just such a a, a terrible little pen to put in this otherwise fantastic moment of, you know, this this should be the moment where we go, yes, this is this is the episode where Yeoman Rand really comes into her own. And then if you even vaguely skim the memory alpha page for <laughs> for this episode, you learn far too much about what happened to Grace Lee Whitney and what would come next. And it is just it is such a downer and like just, you know, to to just I, I, it, it's where I start to lose any sense of sort of being able to string the right words together because it is, it's, it's just one of those horrible little footnotes in history where 
this should have been great. This should have been fantastic. And then you look at it for longer than two seconds and it all falls apart. Yeah, I think it's also important as well, um, you know, not to shy away from these things. It's it's a conversation, I think, which is, is, is slightly broader than maybe one that we want to get into in terms of this episode. Um, but the fact that, you know, all these terrible things happened to Grace Lee Whitney and the way that she was treated and the way that she was kind of, um, you know, uh, abused. I mean, for all that we kind of praise Star Trek for, for being progressive and for being forward thinking and for being, you know, this, this sort of enlightened TV show, which it often was, I think it's also really important to pull it up when it isn't. And, and we shouldn't kind of gloss over things like what happened to uh, Grace Lee Whitney simply because they're uncomfortable. I mean, the whole tenure of this episode, or the whole tone of this episode, rather, is deeply uncomfortable. And, and you know, what happened to her is, is, is a part of that. And I think it's important to kind of acknowledge that and, and sort of say, you know, for all that this could be a progressive show, for all that it did help to highlight, you know, the roles of women, the roles of minorities, the roles of, you know, other races. Um, you know, there are times when it very, very visibly falls short of the standards that it expects itself and others to aspire to. And this is one of the occasions that that's true of. And I mean, it is deeply uncomfortable to, to, to discuss it. It is deeply uncomfortable to discuss many things in this episode. But I don't think that it's something that should be glossed over. We don't need to linger on it. But I, I do think it's important to acknowledge when the show falls short of its own standards. And in, in, in this case, I don't think there's any question at all that it does. Yeah, it is worth noting that this is our last Yeoman Rand episode, effectively, she has one more appearance. I was looking at the wiki, but I was just in my research trying to figure that out. It looks like it's it's a basically a walk-on role in Conscience of a King. So this is our last extended amount of time with Yeoman Rand. And um, she went out as she was, as she lived, just not being very... With Grace Lee Whitney giving the best grace and performance she could in a role that was terribly written by awful people unfortunately and yeah i mean as you said jg we don't need to go into the details here it's very dark and dramatic but it needs to be acknowledged and i mean worth looking up if you can handle it i think you can kind of suspect the trigger warnings that would apply to looking up that story but it's truly awful and yeah it's yeah we just need to take i guess a little moment for her to acknowledge that things weren't that great in the 60s for women or a lot of people. Um, on that note, I'll try to transition us out of this discussion. And I don't know, I want to, let's talk about a character who was written successfully in this episode. I really like DeForest Kelly as McCoy in a little bit of a supporting role here. Not a, definitely far from a McCoy centric episode, but his few scenes I really clicked with. Mm, I definitely think that um, in perhaps a episode that was struggling to really grip onto anything truly specific um, in terms of what it was trying to do or say um, that the McCoy stuff feels the most traditional science fiction in a way almost um, and is kind of the most successful stuff for that like his end of episode arc of um, I have the vaccine, I need time to test it I don't have time to test Mm it, I'm just going to test it on myself damn the consequences, even if it kills me. Um, You know, that's the most kind of Star Trek harkening back to its, you know, we are the the, uh, most competent and uh, noble of our people striving towards, you know, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And, you know, it's by sort of falling back on that, it does give the resolution a lot more, I think, of a... um, feeling that something actually resolved Mm -hmm. than just the Kirk speech that kind of gets the kids on side does. Um, I, you know, it's, it injects that extra moment of, Hey, something actually happened (laughs) Mm -hmm. and it was actual stakes for a moment other than is the bonk kid going to bonk somebody. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I I just quickly interject. Um, McCoy testing the vaccine on himself and then having an immediate, like awful "Ah," reaction uh, I am um, just got my 
technically third booster um, yesterday for COVID-19, the Omicron-specific booster. And boy, did, was that a relatable moment uh, of acting from the Forest <laughs> Kelly. Uh, just, yeah, just, uh, just, ah! And I'm feeling better now, though. And But yes. Uh, um, yeah, there's, there was the um, very specific thing about it that uh, stuck out for me as well, which was uh, that... You know, obviously he has that moment of, you know, I'm, you know, it's all going wrong. Uh, And given where we are in the season and how little of a role McCoy has had, you know, obviously he's in, uh, what is it, five of the eight episodes or something or six of the eight episodes. You know, he's got a substantial role. But um, when I say it's something happens, I really do think for a contemporary audience um, even, you know, with uh, potential knowledge of who DeForest Kelly is, was an actor contemporaneously, I think there was probably still a sense that, oh, maybe, maybe it has gone wrong. Maybe, you know, that, like there, I, I do wonder if there was that moment uh, at the time of it actually being a successful fake out, um, you know, in a way that I think if you saw that on anything more modern, uh, you wouldn't, you wouldn't believe it for an instant. Um, and I mean, part of that is just where we are in the season. If this was season two, episode nineteen, I doubt that would work the same way. Um, but especially with like, you know, Uhura just disappears uh, for multiple episodes. Um, I suppose at this stage of the show, you'd be entirely suspicious if she was ever coming back. Um, you know, with that kind of uh, movement in the cast, I do wonder if it was actually potentially. Um, a a bit of one of those moments of oh maybe you know just for a split second are they actually going to pull the trigger? I just think that's that's a good lens to think about it. I hadn't considered that angle, but yeah, everyone besides besides the two people in the opening credits, everyone's kind of up in the air right now. We're quite a long way off stabilizing the cast, aren't we? Isn't it um, season two where they actually promote them, or am I misunderstanding my history? It, it, it's season two where DeForest Kelly joins Leonard Nimoy and uh, William Shatner in the opening credits. Yeah, um, I quite like. I, 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 this isn't meant to be a, a dismissive in any way, but I quite like the fact that we sometimes get episodes where, like, it's not Uhura at the communications post, or it's not Sulu at the mm. helm, or whatever. Like, it does help to lean into the idea that there are shifts and there are, yeah. you know, an extended crew who, you know, like the guy at the communications desk in this episode, he's going to turn up again and again he he becomes a kind of semi-regular kind of background character i suppose but he gets like half a dozen lines and he gets to be competent and he gets to you know uh, radio down to kirk and the planet and all that kind of stuff none of it's particularly remarkable um and it's not a particularly remarkable performance as well but it's just again it's just that sense that somebody's there and they're getting on with their job the only slightly weird thing in this episode is like uh, there's a couple of times when um kirk says to spock warp factor one get us out of here or whatever it is and uh, why isn't he talking to the helmsman why is he talking to spock but like little minor inconsistencies it's early in the show whatever you know not, not going to get too hung up about that but I, I i quite like the fact that there are these characters who just kind of turn up and then it's like, oh like it's not Hura this week it's it's ensign background guy or whatever you know and i that's that's quite pleasing to me i think it's a nice way of being able to suggest a wider kind of crew without kind of getting too clunky about it yeah, I have no frame of reference for who the two red shirts that landed with them are, but I was glad to see them there. And uh, did, did they get any they, lines, the red shirts? Nope. <laughs> I, I, they just get those telling looks at Spark as he says, you know, go around that corner. Um, uh, I can't even remember, do either of them die? No, they both survive, I think. Although yeah, it's a yeah. it's a bit weird that Kirk doesn't take either of them when he goes to address the kids at the end. Right. You know, like they're beating him up and he's getting bonk bonked on the head and like like you've got two security guys, one of whom is bloody massive. One of them is like this <laughs> huge kind of muscle Mary. Like, where's that guy? You're you're being beaten up by like half a dozen kids and you've got this guy who looks like he could take on Jason Momoa in, in like a, a, a wrestling match. Why is he not with you? Uh, JG, but the captain cannot show vulnerability. <laughs> well, that's very true. That's very true indeed. <laughs> um, it's that scene, um, well, that scene, that sort of turn in the plot just to kind of perhaps zoom in on something else um, here is quite interesting because it also shows how um, Spartan, in a way, the writing is 
um, in that he goes to rescue Rand, who is only kidnapped because she's the extra warm body that they can kidnap. And it means not having to give any speaking lines to the red shirts who could also potentially be kidnapped. Um, because Spock and McCoy are off doing the vaccine and they need to have scenes together. Um, and we need a plot engine to um, get Kirk in a room with these kids and win them over. And Rand gets kidnapped because she's the extra warm body. And it's it's sort of, I think, emblematic of a lot of this episode for me um, in that the the it's it's a plot scaffold around some kind of cool ideas i mean i still i'm still absolutely baffled that we do we never get an explanation for why it's a mirror earth like <laughs> yeah that's just that, lazy <laughs> I, I made the is, joke but yeah it's it definitely feels like oh the lot next door is shooting a western and we cannot build a new set this week we have I mean, no that money that was literally it it was um yeah. uh, they, they just stole another production sets for a day um, according to memory alpha and like i get kind of that shorthand but like that is that is just it's it's the most baffling turn of writing and it's you know i think it is just why i walked away from this episode with such mixed feelings just everything is a scaffold everything is a like everything's kind of a first draft idea even though i'm sure this was the 20th draft by the time they actually filmed it and i just i or to be a fly on the wall when to, to to be there when someone says, "Yeah, it's a mirror earth, but whatever. Um, we don't need to um, we don't need to explain that, and we don't need to do anything with that ever again." Outside of apparently one part of tiny offshoot side media that, from what I, from what I would have memory alpha goes quite wild with it, which you know, God God bless side media. Um, but just yeah, it's just scaffolds all the way down and nothing really hangs together as it should right i mean like that's like the whole 300 years old thing is also like a scaffold to i mean i think part of it is take the sting out of the weird relationship but also to explain why these kids could have lived so long as kids i guess while plague ravages them and they like it's like a cheap fit the whole every thing is just duct tape to repair something that in classic Futurama fashion, that just raises further questions. It's just, yeah. I, I almost wish yep. it had gone just like 50 years, you know, uh, yeah. Grogu style. Like that would have been more palatable. Like, oh, they, they reach 50 and then they do into puberty. And it's just lengthening their, their time span on that sort of, uh, lifespan rather, on that sort of timeline. And like the 300 is just, it's saying numbers um that you're not processing internally and that it does seem to be a recurring theme on um, these early episodes of star trek the problem is if you do process the numbers you end up with now so basically now there are kids (laughs) on that planet who are kind of that's and i I know i know you know predicting the future is always a mugs game when it comes to science fiction but that's that like you know that's just not Great. I mean, they're going to be. There are more conspicuous examples in Star Trek, particularly the fact that Khan apparently comes from the nineteen nineties. But you know, it, it's still, um, yeah, it, it 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 it's a poor choice by any stretch of the imagination. And you know, we've talked in the podcast before. I think particularly when we were talking about um, Mud's Women, about the way that certain genres influence Star Trek, and obviously the Western is the biggest mm-hmm. influence of all. Um, and, you know, the whole wagon train to the stars thing is, you know, an unspeakably obvious cliche to mention. But, you know, when we're talking about those kind of cliches, it's important to remember that there are episodes like Mud's Women, which very clearly do pattern themselves after a Western. You know, it would take two minutes with a word processor to just rewrite that as an episode of Gunsmoke or Bonanza or High Chaparral or, or, or whatever, you know, the thousands of Westerns that got churned out, you know, every week on, on American TV in, in the 1960s. Um, but this one is kind of using that same sense of, uh, such same trappings, I suppose, by invoking the, uh, what is the, the line that McCoy gets, horrible conglomeration of architecture or something like that, or I forget the exact line. Um, but it's it, all that kind of stuff. It it feels like it wants to reach for something which is also kind of 
genre influence, but it's not. It's just saving money. And that's another kind of tension that, like, you know, again, I can't imagine spending 10 minutes in the script to go, right, we've done this parallel earth thing to save us a few quid. Maybe we should stick a light in that explains that thing. I, that kind of call it, like Roddenberry must have been able to do. I know he was busy. I know he was writing about three or four or rewriting about three or four episodes at the time. But surely, surely somebody must have thought, oh, we could stick something in. And then it would give some sort of, I don't know, some kind of resonance to it or something that made it made sense. But it's, it's just not there. And yeah, like you, like you said, Kev, it's, it, it's duct tape on duct tape. And every time you try and answer a question, it just, it just comes up with more. The fact that we're going to have a whole procession of other planets that are just like Earth in order to save some money is unfortunate. And of course, nobody watching this episode in 1966 would be aware of that. So this is the first time in it. And, you know, they make such a big deal of it. It's the cliffhanger into the title sequence. <gasps> it's a parallel Earth, and which is in itself very funny because when Spock is reading off this list of statistics at the, about the planet that they're approaching... And, like, somehow everybody in the bridge knows how heavy Earth is. <laughs> it's like, oh, it's whatever it is, 2.4 times 10 to the power of whatever tons. And they go, oh, it's Earth. It's like, how do you know the weight of your own planet? Anyway, that's beside the point. But it's like... they makes... that's going to be, like, first-year Starfleet. If you don't... If you can't <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's clearly too stupid to be in Starfleet. <laughs> that's, that's, what, that's what it must be. That's exactly yeah. it. Uh, but all that fuss is made over, and then just... Never mentioned again. No, it saved us a couple of quid in the back lot. That's it. It's just so lazy. This was going to be my recommendation, but I can't help but bring it up now. Um, I've been mainlining the uh, 1960s Adams Family, which is contemporaneous to this show. Um, like they were literally produced at the same time. And it operates, you know, it's it obviously also had a much smaller budget. Um, like Star Trek, it basically has uh, three sets. Um, and one of them is the main, you know, living area uh, for where Star Trek has the bridge. Um, but it operates in quite a similar way in terms of just faking, not faking, reusing and corner cutting to kind of hide the little like flourishes that it tries to do. Um, whenever money is spent, uh, that money is conspicuously um, replayed. There's this running gag that they have a kitty and the kitty's actually a lion and the lion was clearly filmed over the course of about three hours on one day and they use that footage about 60 times across two seasons and it's just that kind of ethos i think is something of the era um and something inescapable in that you were very aware that there is a limit to what you could do and obviously there are very cool things you can do with uh moving sets and practical effects but at the end of the day certain things are going to be impossible and certain things are going to cost too much money. And sometimes you have to reuse the lion footage and sometimes you have to use the lot of the um, production next door. And the strongest productions are the ones where you don't notice that this episode of the Adams family has the exact same cold open as one five episodes ago with two new scenes added. Uh, the weaker ones are the ones where you sit there and you go to the end and you say, but why the hell was it a parallel earth? And it's it's just it's obviously that flourish filmmaking. Now that we've moved into the CGI era, where it seems that all you need to do to paper over some like poor inconsistency is to throw a little bit of money at an overworked CGI company uh, and hope nobody ever looks at your labor practices. You know, we seem to have moved away from it. But <laughs> like the reason I have a mixed reaction to this episode is not. Like just like you know, I'm quite hard on it, but I'm also very charmed by a lot of like how they get to where they where they do. You know the the set that's oh, it's just the production next door, but you know we we nicked it for a, a couple of days, and uh, now we have you know a planet to play on. Like I think that's you know it's 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 a very charming um, use of what you have to tell a broader story, and they just. Oh, how I wish they had told a better story while <laughs> letting me letting me enjoy those little quirks. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, I think it's we're feel I feel like we're in wrap up mode now, but there's one scene I definitely want to discuss still, which <laughs> is uh I I mean, 
well, I don't even know if I have many thoughts on it. Do you have any thoughts on Kirk's big monologue at the end about, look, you've become like the adults you so despise because you can, you know, violence. I think, I mean, it's kind of a goofy setup for a monologue. I do think Shatner's effective at delivering it, but then this is the eighth time in eight episodes that Shatner has done really well delivering a monologue. So also the novelty of it's kind of worn off. I don't think it's his best performance, I've got to say. I think he goes pretty broad here. And I kind of understand why he does. I think, like you say, Kev, I think he's been quite effective at being able to give these speeches in the past. Um, And at a certain point, you kind of run out of different ways to do it. Um, The fact that he's appealing to a bunch of kids... Also, you like the fact that he's overemphasizing and going maybe a bit over the top, like, but that, you know, you're trying to hold the attention of, of, of youngsters. So, you know, something which is maybe a bit melodramatic or which is a bit over the top might be an appropriate way of trying to do that. But I'm not wholly sold on it. I don't think the, again, I, I feel that the direction is kind of letting things down here because I think thematically, the thing you've become the thing that you are trying to destroy like i can kind of see that that might have a connection to the rest of the episode but i think between the direction and and chatner i think it's a bit hammy in it um i don't think it's one of his better moments um i think kind of works to undercut that um it's not terrible but it's not you know it's kind of the theme of this episode like you can see what they were going for but oh it just doesn't really work it's trying to sell the the episode we've just watched was lord of the flies when the episode that we've just watched was more along the lines of some weird parallel west side story with no singing and like it's it's that at odds that kirk is trying to sell oh you know you've become violent you've become monsters you've become the very things you fear and the very things, becoming the very things you fear until that, you know, he gets bonked repeatedly scene. Until then, the, the you know, it's it's more, it's, it's mischief. It's, ooh, we're, the, we're, we're, we're this terrifying gang of kids. Ooh, you better watch out. We might sing some, uh, we might sing some na-na-na-na's at you. Uh, you know, it, it's, <laughs> it's very, it's varyingly effective. God, I wish that they had something a bit more like, you know, it, it, a more modern production would have given them a signature thing beyond just the na 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 nas, for example, um, like something more recognizable and more you know unique that indicated something had happened in three hundred years. But like, you know, it's just it's it no, nothing that leads up to that point. I think justifies the speech Kirk gives, except for that moment of yeah, he's getting attacked by kids who. I don't know, at multiple points, he very clearly could have, like, shrugged and immediately knocked them all off him. <laughs> I think, but I think that does kind of also get to the heart of it as well, though, John. I mean, I think the thing is, is that there's no sense of threat at all, mm-hmm. no matter how often yeah, you go bonk, bonk, and, and kind of bang the hammer. There's no sense of threat. So this kind of, you've become the things you fear, like, yeah, but you could just stand up and they'll all fall off you. It's not, you know, the, like like a couple of the kids there are clearly like five or six. I mean, there's yeah. no, there's just no sense of danger, and so the the you know a big overwrought speech about it is isn't isn't going to land because that's just not really very convincing. I do wonder how much of that was painting themselves into a corner accidentally with the nature of the um, disease. Yeah, uh, it could be, because yeah. you obviously get the the infected man at the beginning who is very clearly only just become infected. Um, and, you know, now he's in the final stages and he's attacks them and then he breaks down crying because the tricycle's broken and then he dies immediately. And you get the other, the woman that they're afraid of, but like, because there's a sense that, oh, once it's in its final stages, you don't have very long to live. That means that you don't have very many moments like those. And so there isn't really a sense that they're actually afraid of much. It's just, you know, they're like, I keep coming back to West Side Story because, you know, they're not kids running away from zombies. Like the, 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 the evil, gro- the evil grups are, you know, two people who show up to menace them. Well, menace, only menace them once, you know, the second time it doesn't even menace them. And, there's no real sense that, well, if they just wait wait an hour, that thread will be gone. 
and now I think we're really wrapping up the discussion. I don't have anything <laughs> else to say. Uh, beyond just a fun fact, one of the kids hanging out is a uh, character actor Phil Morris of Seinfeld, of uh, many things, really. Uh, just look him up and you'll be see, oh, that's a face I recognize. Well, I think we can probably therefore wrap up our discussion of Mary there. And we can move to our lovely new feature, which is our scoring. So, um, uh, well, Kev, what, what, what would you give this episode? Uh, I was coming to this a notch higher, but you've all convinced me to take it down to a four out of ten. Four. Uh, that's, that's, that's very generous. Um, oh, yeah. I, was, I, <laughs> I think... Oh, yeah, I think oh, uh, two. I think I'm going to go over to two for this one. Oof, that is that is that is an absolute slating. Good yeah, I, I'm not a fan. <laughs> uh, what about yourself, John? I, you know, I go back and forth. Like, you know, like I say, I'm, I'm, I'm charmed by some of the design things. You know, I, I, I like yeah. reusing, reusing a, the 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 set of the production next door just to, to kind of give yourself a bit of variety. This. There's so much that I should like, but my God, there's just so much that goes wrong. Uh, like, I mean, for what actually ends up, you know, judging the text as the text, I've, you know, a two feels appropriate. Um, I guess, yeah. I mean, that's wishful just, six, literal two. That's kind of why I split the difference with four. Exactly. I'm yeah, still... yeah. There you go. I'll agree with you, Kev. Because of that, I will go for a practical four. Yes. Lovely. Um, okay. Yeah, I mean, like a two is what I'd give to like new episodes of The Flash or She-Hulk, where are they're like <laughs> uh, complete disasters of shows that can't figure out what they're doing at all. I don't know if I, I four might be like the floor for Star Trek for me. Like no matter what, it's at least a show with like clear narrative vision and purpose. I guess JJ, if you're ranking them based on just Star Trek in general, maybe that's where your two is coming from. Um... But I'm just thinking them as of TV episodes themselves. No, that's fair enough. I mean, one one of the things I mean, one of the whole points of the podcast is that you know I'm I'm coming from it from one specific angle, and you're coming at it from another. And you know, I I I have experience of 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 um, season three, um, which isn't great. Um, and uh, you know, the very last episode of Star Trek, uh, the original series, spoilers uh, of very mild spoilers, is one of the worst episodes of television that has ever been broadcast. So I am kind of grading on a curve, but I am trying to be fair. And like, like I mentioned when we were talking about the episode, like the fact that this is the first time we come across, oh, it's a planet just like Earth. Like it's easy to judge and say, okay, well, we're going to have Rome planet, or we're going to have gangster planet, or we're going to have Nazi planet but that's not fair to judge this episode on because this is the first time that we've come across that and nobody watching it in 1966 could possibly know that so so you know on this occasion i would be prepared to give the episode you know a break i'm not prepared to give it a break for having captain kirk hitting on an underage girl though so that's kind of where i'm coming from to perhaps put a button on it um as i understand it this is jason isaacs's favorite episode of star trek which perhaps should be yet another indicator that Lorca was evil all along. <laughs> Couldn't really have put it better myself. All right, let's uh, let's quietly move on from Mary and we can leave it there for the time being. Um, and move to recommendations. Um, John, what would you care to recommend for us this week? Well, uh, like I said before, I was going to recommend The Addams Family, but I feel like I've spent a little bit too much time on that already. Wonderful. Go check it out if you haven't. Uh, what I will recommend then instead, I'll come back to Star Trek. Um, I will recommend if you are a Lower Decks fan, and my God, if you're not, what is wrong with you? Uh, I thoroughly recommend you check out uh, Tony Newsom, who plays uh, Insa Mariner. Uh, she co-hosts a podcast called Yo's This Racist. Uh, it's a fantastic show. The title sounds spicy, but I promise you it's a lot more fun um, than you might think. Uh, every week, she and co-host Andrew T uh, listen to racism voicemails uh, from people that run the gamut from um, is it weird that my co-worker wears this hairstyle all the way to here's just me spending two minutes telling you a, something ridiculous that my mother did and everyone can laugh at it. It's a fantastic podcast. Uh, one of the first listens for me every week. But the thing that would really intrigue Star Trek fans is they are one of the first shows that left the Earwolf Network uh, in the big kind of exodus uh, a few years ago. And when they went solo, uh, they have their kind of 
not Patreon uh, that they call Suboptimal Pods. And behind that paywall, it may shock you to learn that Tony Newsom, current Star Trek actor, gets a little bit loose with uh, little tidbits and uh, things that, you know, not to give anything away because the number one rule of Suboptimal Pods is no knocking. Uh, you know, it's... It's a, it's a fun place to be as someone who is interested in the future of Star Trek. Even if even if it's not, you know, a constant constant barrage, there's some fun stuff behind there. There's a watch-along uh, behind their paywall of the first episode of Season 2 of Lower Decks with show creator Mike McMahon. And it's things like that. You know, Tony Newsom, she's a huge Star Trek fan. She's thrilled to be on the uh, a part of the part of the shows. And, you know, that enthusiasm is infectious. I cannot recommend you enough. Go and submerge yourself in their little podcasting world it will it will just it'll be the best addition you make to your life uh, i that sounds great um i want to also piggyback on tiny newsome being funny on podcasts uh look up comedy bang bang and every episode tiny newsome in it because she is <laughs> a hysterical improviser uh oh and jack quaid also t- around when the lower deck season premieres jack quaid tends to come on as well with tawny and it's um he's also really good on comedy bang bang I- I can thoroughly co-sign their most recent double-hander of Comedy Bang Bang. Yes. Uh, which they also did with Paul F. Tompkins, um, uh, Dr. Miglimo from Lower Decks. It's, it's probably one of the best episodes of any podcast that I've listened to in a very long time. I'm going to recommend a movie that is, oh gosh, almost 30 years old. I just did the math and I wish I didn't. But um, <laughs> I'm going to recommend The Firm from 1993, the legal thriller starring... And I'm going to just name every notable name. You got Tom Cruise, of course, as the lead, married to Gene Triplehorn. You got Gene Hackman as the mentor. You got Gary Busey and Holly Hunter as bumbling private eyes. You got Ed Harris as a bubbling FBI agent. You got Hal Holbrook. You got David Strathairn. Margot Martindale is in a few scenes. Hitmen are played by Tobin Bell and Dean Norris. Paul Sorvino swoops in at the end. And oh, and the heavy, the most terrifying person in the movie is played by Wilford Brimley. So as you can probably guess, that is a really stacked cast for the 90s. It's very much the kind of movie they don't make anymore. Um, yeah, I mean, just having all those stars in one place, I love to see it. It's about Tom Cruise working for a law firm uh, that is evil, and he has to stop what the evil law firm is doing, but then uh, also protect himself. It's it's very bare-bones plot. It's based off an airport novel by John Grisham, and that's just how it gets its structure and everything. But also, it's just very well constructed. The direction is fantastic by Sidney Pollock. It's just very clear and artistically just precise. It's not very flashy, but it doesn't need to be. And he makes 150 minutes feel like 90. It's a truly tight and effective thriller. And I really love discovering it. And I wish we made more just like star-studded, tight-to-the-chest thrillers like this today in this day and age. So what you're saying is it's 1993's Knives Out, Glass Onion. Exactly. Just in terms of, oh, it's that guy. Oh, it's that guy. Oh, it's that guy. <laughs> I guess Ryan Johnson is the person doing it nowadays. <laughs> Somebody has to. Yes. Okay, fantastic. Thank you very much. Um, I'm going to recommend a book uh, this time. I, uh, it's very recently published. Um, it's called The Ponies at the Edge of the World uh, by Catherine Munro. Uh, it's a book about an anthropologist, um, uh, the self-same author, uh, Catherine Munro, uh, who moved to the Shetland Islands, uh, for those of you who don't know, or at the north of Scotland, and, um, and started rearing ponies. Um, it's uh, somewhere between an autobiography and a memoir, um, and it's just about her life on the islands, uh, getting into uh, the way that she was able to use her life there to kind of rebuild herself sort of emotionally and, and spiritually. It's a very kind of charming book. It's, uh, to be honest, not the sort of thing that would normally be my kind of fair, um, but I kind of took a punt on it, and I'm really, really glad that I did, because it's, it's you know, when people say books are heartwarming or kind of lovely or life-affirming or whatever, it's just such a boring cliche. Who cares? Well, funnily enough, just this one time, I do. And it's just, it's an absolutely delightful book. She's a lovely kind of authorial voice. This is the first book that she's ever written. And I think for a debut, uh, a debut piece of work, it's really, it's just incredibly charming. And it's very, very easy to fall in love with. And it gives such a, 
such an honest kind of appraisal of rural life. It doesn't gloss over the difficulties of integration or the, the problems of somebody coming to an island where they're not necessarily, uh, you know, where they don't necessarily have roots. Um, but because she's so invested in what she's doing, she's so sort of deeply in love with these animals and, and, and so kind of motivated. It just becomes such a, I know, it's, it's kind of, I'm finding very hard to avoid the word delightful, but that's kind of the word I want to use to describe it. it it's it's really delightful. Um, so yeah, that's called The Ponies at the Edge of the World uh, by uh, Catherine Monroe. So that's my recommendation this week. All right, fantastic. Uh, before we close out, John, do you have anything to plug? Uh, well, you can find me on Twitter at John D. Author, um, and you can find my written work at johndauthor.work. It's all slightly older stuff from before COVID that's in desperate need of an editor. But, um, but yeah, there's a, there's a lot of my um, fiction writing up there. If you like to be heroes, if you like science fiction, um, it's all sort of loose text and desperate need of readers as much as editors as anything, but you can get it all for free there. When COVID happened, I kind of decided to pull down all the paywalls and so on. So it's all there and uh, easy for you to find. And over on my, Twitter, um, the actual thing that I, you know, uh, perhaps sadly the only consistent thing I've done recently, you could also find my ongoing uh, one tweet video game review thread uh, that I've been maintaining for a few years now, where anytime I finish a video game, and my God, I play far too many, um, you can find a one tweet review uh, that just says, here's some positives and here's some negatives. Uh, and that's all very easy to find over on my Twitter, which again is uh, at John D. Author. All right, fantastic. You can find us on Twitter at talking, Talk Trek to You and email us, talkingtrektoyou at gmail.com. Uh, please like, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast and whatever podcatcher you use to help other people find us. And yeah, I think that about. Oh, yes. Other plugs. Uh, I can be found at Kev Kozer, K-E-V-K-O-E-S-E-R on Twitter. And I also am a frequent guest on the podcast Total Massacre, hosted by Rowan Kaiser about action movies. You can find more of JG's writings at www.jgmcquarry.scott, J-G-M-C-Q-U-A-R-R-I-E.scott. And also he has the other podcast, Beatles Stuffology, where he and Andrew Deacon review the Beatles songs one by one. Um, and that sums up our section of the plugs. Fantastic. Thank you very much. And I think we can probably leave it there for Mary. Next week, we are going to be talking about Dagger of the Mind. And as always, we hope you're going to join us for it. But until then, keep talking.